I asked our oldest daughter if I could share a little bit about her first days as a human being because our introduction to parenting was not extremely smooth. Uh, She did not sleep a lot. Those of you who have uh, young kids, you know that sleep is rare and precious. And I had been warned, as people like to warn you, that I might not sleep a lot during the first weeks and months of her life. But, and I know this is going to sound stupid in hindsight, but I really thought in my head, I thought, yeah, I know. Uh, but there were times uh, when I was in college where I stayed up late and I didn't get a lot of sleep or I did an all-nighter or whatever. So I think I am prepared. What I didn't process was that there's a huge difference between choosing to stay awake and staying awake because a small person is screaming and crying in your ear. Uh, Our oldest was a colicky child, at least for the first six or eight weeks, and so uh, it it took both of us in the middle of the night to take turns to get her to go back to sleep if she woke up. So I remember nights walking through the house at midnight or two or three or four in the morning and singing every song I could think of in my repertoire of songs in my brain hoping that she would go to sleep and then I'd run out of songs and I would circle the house again and I would sing again while she cried and she cried and finally she'd fall asleep. And she actually had also what we used to call an altitude meter where if you sat down at any point in that process, she would wake up and start it again and you'd finally get her to sleep and you would creep into her room and you'd ever so carefully lay her into that crib. And, and some of you who have kids, you, you've experienced this. You reach over that crib railing and you lower the child down and now you're like this. And then you ever so carefully remove your hands trying to make as little motion as possible and you tiptoe to the door and right as you get to the door, they start it again. And I remember during those days just feeling at times a sense of frustration and despair like, like my life as I knew it is over. And I remember at one point saying to my wife, you know what I miss? I miss just being able in the evening to sit down and read a book in peace and quiet because that nurtures my introverted soul. And I remember she said something to the effect of, I think for now you just need to let that part of you die. And uh, I remember thinking, I don't want to die, right? I want to live. I don't want that to happen. But what had happened to us in those days happened to many of you, whether early in the parenting process or later in the parenting process. The realization that we had was this. We can't control our kids. We can influence them. We can try to shepherd them. But we can't control our kids. We have three kids. They're all, thank the Lord, old enough now that they sleep through the night for the most part. They take their own baths. They use the bathroom on their own. So we are living the sweet life. (laughs) But what hasn't changed is we can't control them. Sometimes they might say or do or think things that we don't approve of. And you've no doubt experienced that same thing if you're a parent. And because of that desire for control and that desire we have for guarantees there's an entire industry centered around books about parenting 
Right, Because we want to know that if we put the right inputs into the system, we'll get the right outputs out of the system. That our kids will grow up to be mature, responsible, to follow the Lord. So go to Amazon this afternoon and just type in the word parenting. I did this yesterday. There are hundreds of thousands of books about parenting. They start with the advice even before the child is born. How to begin being a parent as soon as you know that you're going to have a baby. And then parenting your newborn and your toddler and your elementary kids and your high school kids and your young adults. There are books about parenting every type of kid. I ran across a book where the subtitle was How to Parent Your Easily Frustrated, Chronically Inflexible Children. And I thought that's a realistic and probably helpful book. I just don't know how I'd explain to my kids why I'm reading it, right? Yes, you are all those words. All of those apply to you. We hope for guarantees and promises because parenting is unpredictable and difficult. Because of that instinct that we have, I think that that's why the verse we're going to look at this morning from the book of Proverbs is not only a well-beloved and much-quoted verse, it's also a misunderstood verse. So as we continue with our misunderstood series, we want to dive into Proverbs 22.6, a parenting verse, and talk about how it is misunderstood and then what it actually does mean and how that applies to those of us who are parents or those of us who might one day be parents. Let me read the passage for you. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, just like every week, what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk through how is this passage usually interpreted and then why I think that interpretation misses the mark. And then what it actually means and how it applies to us. So how is this passage typically interpreted? What I want to do is, is give us, like, like every week, just a few quotes that I found online from writers and bloggers uh, who have interpreted this verse in the usual way. And then I'm going to summarize uh, how it's normally interpreted before we move further. So how is this passage usually interpreted? Let me show you just a few quotes that illustrate it. Child training works. You can make your children great in the sight of God and men. A properly trained child will fear God and live a wise and righteous life as an adult. Do not question this promise. It is a promise, not a possibility. If trained consistently, they will revert to their training as an adult. Believe it. Count on it. That's a writer and pastor named Jonathan Crosby. Let me show you another one. This is from Sarah Beth Marr, another writer. The way we look at Proverbs 22.6 is really a reflection of our faith in the God of the universe. As we reflect on his character, goodness, faithfulness, and love for us, we can count on him to keep our children aiming in his direction. Be encouraged today that we can bank on Proverbs 22.6 as a promise. And then another perspective. This is from an anonymous letter that was written to focus on the family, says, doesn't Proverbs 22.6 promise that kids who are raised properly by their parents will turn out all right? That's not been our experience at all. Our college-age son walked away from his faith a year ago and started engaging in some extremely destructive behaviors. 
Now his younger sister seems to be following in his footsteps. We're a Christian family. And we've always tried to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where did we go wrong? So you see the the heartache behind that question. If Proverbs 22.6 is a guarantee and it didn't pan out, where did we go wrong? And so they look back with shame and guilt. Right, here's the way the passage is usually understood. Here's how I'd summarize it. Parents who raise their children according to God's word have a guarantee that their children will become God-honoring adults. Parents who raise their children according to God's word have a guarantee that their children will become God-honoring adults. And we're going to talk about why I think that that interpretation of the passage misses the mark. But before I do, here's what I want to say. Of all the passages that we're covering in this series, I know that for some in this room, this one may be the most difficult and sensitive on a personal level. I think there are probably a few groups here in the room. There are some of you that you don't yet have kids. Maybe, maybe you don't think you will have kids or don't plan to have kids. But, but I think many in the room, you say, I don't yet have kids. I hope one day to have kids. And maybe you look forward to having kids either with fear. You say, I'm not cut out to be a parent. I didn't have great parents and I'm scared. Or you look forward with a great deal of confidence. You say, I got this, right? You're the ones that look at our kids at the restaurant and you say, my kids will not ever do that. Because future children are always well-behaved children. (laughs) right? Or maybe it is that you are currently a parent, like like I am, my wife and I are, and, and we've got kids at home, and you have kids at home, and it's tiring, and it's challenging. And you live each day with a mixture of fear that you're doing things wrong, and guilt about the things you've already done wrong, and hope that everything's going to turn out okay. Or maybe it is that you're on the other end of the parenting task and you prayed for your kids and you tried to raise them well. Or, or maybe, maybe you struggled with parenting. And maybe, maybe you have one or more kids today that is not walking with the Lord, even though you did your best. And you look back with guilt and regret and shame. Where did I go wrong? What did I not say? What did I not do? Even if they're doing well, you might struggle with that as you see them struggle. And part of what I want to do as we look at this passage this morning, I want to do two things. One, I want to lower that sense of shame and fear and guilt that you may have around the parenting task. I want to take that down a couple of notches to say, hey, in the the grand scheme of things, we have influence on our kids, but not control. And I think we're going to see that as we move through Proverbs chapter 22 Verse 6, but I also want to elevate the importance of the parenting task in our mind. Because I I want us to come away from here going, okay, I can't make my kids do anything. But I have very real and powerful influence in their lives. I have been given a stewardship by God over people who belong to him. And that's important. So that's where we're going to go this morning. But first, let me dive into why I think the standard interpretation of Proverbs 22.6 misses the mark, right? Why I don't think it gives us a guarantee, right? Why is the usual interpretation wrong? First one is this, Proverbs are not meant to be guarantees, okay? That's not what they are. Now, I want to clarify, we believe that all of the scripture is the word of God. 
All of it is without error. All of it is true, including Proverbs 22.6. But as we're reading the scripture, we always have to ask, what is it supposed to be saying to us? And in the book of Proverbs, we're especially going to have to look at the genre of literature that we are reading. It's a genre of literature that is called wisdom literature. And the idea behind wisdom literature is simply this. The Proverbs are general principles that are generally true, but not in every case, right? They're not meant to be guarantees. And I'm going to give some examples in a minute. I think this is really hard for us to wrap our minds around, especially as Americans, because we are accustomed to guarantees, right? I was thinking this week about an incident from my childhood when I was a kid, I went on a class trip to Washington, D.C., and we got in a bus, we drove from Louisiana to Washington, D.C., and my dad was a chaperone on the trip, so he went with us. Somewhere along the way, we stopped at a, a, like a cafe, a cafeteria that was recommended by the bus driver, and as you walked into the restaurant, there was a sign that said, kids under 10, eat free, right? That's a good sign. So we get in the line, we order the food, I order my food, we get up to the front and they ring it up and they charged my dad for my meal and his meal. They didn't honor what their sign said. And so my dad said, hey, I think you made a mistake. It said kids under 10 eat free. And the cashier said, no, that's, that doesn't apply to large groups of kids. And my dad said, well, the sign doesn't say any such thing. It just says kids under 10 eat free. And they said, sir, would you please move along? And my dad said, I will not. And we had a little sit-in right there at this cafeteria until they honored the guarantee, right? And so on that day, my dad was the hero of this cafeteria in like rural Alabama because everybody behind us got that deal because it's a guarantee. That's how we think about guarantees, right? Many of us grew up seeing the commercials with George Zimmerman from the Men's Warehouse, You'll like the way you look. I guarantee it. Guarantees are everywhere. You can literally take apples back to Walmart and they are guaranteed if you don't like them. And so when we come across the Proverbs, I think we naturally want to think this is a guarantee, right? But that's not how wisdom literature works. I'm going to illustrate, first of all, with some Modern day Proverbs, okay, some Proverbs from our own culture, because we do have wisdom literature in our own culture. And then I'm going to show some illustrations from the book of Proverbs that I think will highlight what I'm trying to say about the way that Proverbs work. Okay, so a few from our modern culture. You'll recognize this saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Right now, I do eat an apple almost every day, if not two apples, almost every day. And yet sometimes I still get sick and have to go to the doctor. So how do I process that? Well, I'm considering a lawsuit against the apple farmers of America. Because they lied to me. Well, no, I recognize this is generally true, right? It's not true in every case. It is generally true that in life, if you eat more apples than, say, Twinkies, on average, you will be healthier. But not always. It's not a promise. It's It's a principle. Let me give you another one. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I try to go to bed early. I try to get up as early as my body will let me. I am relatively healthy. I like to think of myself as wise, but that's all I got, man, from that proverb. Okay? (laughs) So is it a lie? 
right? Some of you are like, I go to bed early, I get up early, and I'm none of those things. But is it generally true that if you get better sleep, you go to bed early, you wake up early, is it generally true you'll have more productive hours in your day, you'll generally be healthier, you are generally wiser, and you probably, on average, will make more money? Generally. But not always. Let me give you a couple more real quick. Good things come to those who wait. Sometimes. Right? But you don't want to wait too long because those who hesitate are lost. Right? So you need to know where these Proverbs come together. When is one true? When is the other true? How do they fit together? Let me give you one more. A picture is worth a thousand words. The idea being that you can see a picture and that can, that can cover a lot of things you might say to describe the picture. But it's not true in every case, right? Or why am I even here? I should go home and come back next week with a couple of pictures. We know it's not true in every case. But it's a general principle that applies in a particular situation. Hey, the Proverbs do the same thing. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs eleven twenty five: The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. So generally it's saying, if you're a generous person, you will receive generosity. You will receive more in your life, right? Generally. But do you know generous people for whom that's not true? And do you know stingy people who have a lot of stuff? Of course you do. But is it generally true that if I extend generosity to others, I'll receive generosity in return, both from other people and from God? Yeah, Statistically, on average, generally, yes. But not always. Let me give you another one. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Have you ever known somebody who knew and honored God, but who died young? Of course you have. I think of a a great missionary man of God like Jim Elliott, who died when he was 29. But then I think of a man like Hugh Hefner who lived in 91. So is this always true? Of course not. Is it generally true? Yes. Is it generally true that if I follow the way that God has set out for my life, if I avoid things like substance abuse and violence and sexual immorality, and creating enmity between myself and others, if I avoid those kinds of things, will I, on average, statistically, generally, live longer? Yeah. But not in every case. One more. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. There are some of you in this room, you're very skilled in your work, and yet at this point in your life, you have not received recognition for that. You certainly haven't stood in the presence of kings or important people. But you're skilled. You're diligent. And yet you labor mostly in obscurity. But is it generally true in most cases that diligent, skilled people in their work will be honored to a greater degree than lazy people who don't show up to work? Generally. Right, so this is what Proverbs do, is they say, this is generally the way the world works. Think about Proverbs as advice, because this is what it is. It's advice from a father to his son. And he's saying, hey, son, let me just tell you a little bit about the way the world works. The world generally works best when you follow the way that God has laid out. It usually is going to go better for you. 
But then you also have psalms where the psalmists will lament, why are wicked people prospering? Because sometimes that happens. So proverbs are not guarantees, right? And children are not guarantees, certainly. They are not like toasters, where you can call the manufacturer and be like, I ordered a compliant one, I got a jerk, right? And send them back. You can't do that. Instead, proverbs are general statements of wisdom about the way God has arranged the world. So Proverbs 22.6 is not a guarantee that if you put the right inputs in, you will get the right outputs out when it comes to your children. Secondly, the meaning of this actual verse is a bit uncertain. Okay, And I'm sharing this not to confuse us. But simply to say, if we're going to root our entire parenting philosophy around a verse, it would be good if we pick one that we're certain of what it's saying to us. Okay, let me show you in the original language, if you were just to translate this verse directly from Hebrew, here's what it, it, what it says. Dedicate a youth to his way, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So you read that, and, and a question that comes up in my mind is this. Dedicate him to his own way? Dedicate him to God's way? What exactly is going on in this verse? And people have debated, what does this actually mean? Those who say dedicate a youth to his own way usually take one of two approaches to this passage. They may say his own way means that the gifts and the abilities and the the passions and strengths that he has been given by God. So the idea is, as a parent, you're trying to send your kid down the unique path that they need to go on given their strengths and weaknesses and talents and desires and all of that. You set them off on the, on the very specific individual path that they ought to go on. I'm not convinced by that uh, interpretation of the passage, mostly because in the ancient world, they were generally less concerned than we are with self-actualization. Okay, so they didn't tend to give their kids online Enneagram tests or anything like that. Or be like, you know, Josiah is like a lion and not an otter or whatever it may be. They didn't do that kind of thing as often as we do, right? And, and, and Proverbs tends to be wisdom that is generalized. Anyway, the other way that if it's his own way, it could be saying, if you dedicate a young man or, or a young woman uh, to, to do whatever he wants to do, right? So you never correct him, dedicate him to his own way and just let him go. Then even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. In other words, if you raise a stinker, you'll get a stinker as a grown-up, okay? That could be, the only reason I'm not convinced by that one is because the word dedicate suggests intentionality, And I've never met anybody who says, I intentionally want to raise terrible children. The other thing is that in Proverbs, terrible children don't usually have the opportunity to grow old. Proverbs says they die. So then if it's God's way, dedicate a youth to God's way or the way he should go, the idea is that even when he's old, if you you train your kids to follow the path that God has set out, then even when they're old, they'll not depart from it. I think that's probably what the passage says. But again, we have to balance that with the reality, as I just said. It's not a guarantee. It's a principle. And I share this again just to say there are several passages in the scripture about parenting. And they they tend to indicate the same types of things about the influence that parents have. But I want to be careful about pressing a lot of weight onto one passage when we're not 100% sure that it says what we're saying it says. 
Okay, so Proverbs are not meant to be guarantees. The meaning of this verse is uncertain. Thirdly, and this is a theological reason, ultimately children are responsible for their own choices. Okay, ultimately before God, your kids and mine will be responsible to God for their own choices. So we have influence again, but we don't have control. You can't make your kids do anything. Okay, you, you can pray, you can shepherd, you can lead. The only way to make them do anything would be through physical force. Okay, but the reality is they will one day stand before God, just as you and I will, to give an account for their own life. I am a Texan. I grew up in Texas, and so I love Tex-Mex, including tacos. So typically in our house, once a week, we have taco night. It's usually on Tuesday, so we normally have taco Tuesday once a week. And uh, we will make tacos, and we have told our kids how delightful they can be. And yet, two of our three kids consistently complain that they don't like tacos. And we've tried to explain to them the right way of life, right? We've tried to explain to them, there are as many different ways to make tacos as there are people in the universe. You can make them soft, you can get a hard shell, you can use chicken, you can use beef, pork, whatever you want, you can make it. And yet they still complain. And I've lain awake at night going, where did I go wrong? What did I not say? What did I not do? What could I have done differently? But they have made choices, right? And I refuse to be responsible for that wickedness. Okay? I can't make them like it. I can't make them value what I value. All I can do is influence, right? And that's, that's a, a silly illustration, I realize. But, but often we're dealing with things that are much more serious, aren't we? My kids aren't walking with the Lord. They don't want to go to church anymore. They're making poor decisions with their body, with their relationships, with their words. What did I not say? What did I say? What did I do wrong? Right? And the reality is that in the final analysis, they will stand before God responsible for their choices. We are responsible for what God has called us to do, which is to exercise the influence that he has given us to train them to know Jesus. It's interesting, one of the godliest kings in Judah, in the southern kingdom of Israel, his name was Josiah. He became king when he was very young. He was seven years old. But he had a very wicked son named Jehoaz, who turned the nation back to idolatry. But on the other end, Josiah had a father named Amon and a grandfather named Manasseh, who were two of the worst kings in the history of Judah. And yet each generation had to decide anew, will I follow God or not? So our children stand before God responsible for their own choices. And then the fourth reason I think that uh, the usual interpretation of this verse misses the mark relates to God the Father. Well, let me for just a moment before I move on to that one. Children are responsible for their own choices. I want us to see the beginning of the verse of the book of Proverbs. This is Solomon writing to his son. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. You see Solomon's plea? He says, son, don't stray from the path. Now, here's the deal. If Solomon thought that there was no possibility of that, if Solomon really thought, hey, I'm writing a book, I'm putting the right input in, I'm telling him the right things, I will get the right output out, 
I don't think this plea would be necessary. But he still has that uncertainty. Because even the writer of Proverbs knew that there's no guarantees. In fact, Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, made some very bad decisions that divided the kingdom of Israel in half. So children stand before God responsible for their own choices. And then fourthly, even God the Father has rebellious children. Even God the Father has rebellious children. In fact, that's the story of the Bible. One of the most common metaphors used of God and his relationship with us is father to children, right? Is there a better father than God? No. He's perfect. He's never made a mistake. And yet his children rebelled. Look at the book of Hosea, chapter 11. God says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. By the way, that word youth, that's the same word we see for youth in Proverbs 22, 6. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they, that is the prophets, called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I bent down and fed them. Do you hear the heart of a heartbroken father? I'm the one that led him. I'm the one that carried him and I I rocked him to sleep and I sang those songs in the middle of the night. I'm the one that taught him to walk. I bent down with the little plastic spoon and gave them the food when they were young. And yet they said, we don't want you. So if God has rebellious children, and sometimes his children have rebellious children, right? and the story of the scripture ultimately is that we are rebellious children, and yet God in his mercy and grace sent his son to save us from our own sin and rebellion. So we sang about earlier that Jesus died for our sins and arose again so that we can have a restored relationship with him. Parents don't control, and even God himself, although he could control, although he could force, he often restrains his influence directly. And so even God the Father has rebellious children. And so this proverb is no guarantee. So what does it mean? I want to talk about that for just a a few minutes. What does the passage mean? Let me summarize what the passage does mean. Here it is. As a general principle, children raised to know and obey God will become adults who know and obey God. And again, the key phrase there is as a general principle. Like we've said, generally it is true that parents who are engaged with their kids, parents who walk with God, parents who teach their kids to walk with God, generally... Proverbs 22.6 is saying those kids will continue on that path. And the flip is true as well. Generally, parents who say, you know what, I'm going to let them do what they do, they will end up as adults who just do whatever they do. Right? It's not a 100% guarantee. But there's certainly a correlation. And you see that correlation pop up in Scripture periodically as well. Let me show you just one instance of this in the Scripture from 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, that is, he he was the son of David and a woman named Hagith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. His father, David, had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? 
And he also was a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. Right, so here's what the writer of Kings tells us. David was the kind of dad, at least with these two guys, who was very just hands-off, right? So as Adonijah's growing up, he sees him start to do some things that aren't right, and David never comes and goes, hey, buddy, don't do that. Why are you doing that? That's not what God wants. He never had done any of that. So what happens? Adonijah grows up and he says, I want to be king. And he rebels against his father and he institutes a coup in Israel. And and the author of Kings says, also, I want to remind you that David had another son named Absalom who did the same thing. And we don't know why David never said anything to these guys, but I think it is significant here that the writer of Kings says, by the way, Adonijah was really handsome. And so was Absalom, in fact. Absalom had long, beautiful, flowing hair that ended up getting him killed, but that's another story. But David never stepped in with either of these guys. And so there is a general principle in Scripture that parents who say, hey, I'm just going to be hands-off, they end up with rebellious kids. And there's a general principle that parents who are diligent and train their kids to know and walk with God generally Their kids grow up and follow that path. It's not 100%. But I think all of us have seen instances where this plays out in life, right? Maybe you've been at a playground or uh, wherever, at the mall, whatever, and you see some little kid and he's just a holy terror, right? He's just, he's biting the other kids. He's kicking them. He's tearing stuff apart. And maybe you go and you try to say something to that child's parent. You go, hey, um, I'm concerned that others are going to be injured as a result of what your kid is doing. And they, they kind of laugh and they go, ha, yeah, Johnny is very spirited and energetic, isn't he? And you think in your head, no, Johnny's a felon, right? <laughs> He's going to end up with a rough life. You know why? Because you're not willing to step in now and tell Johnny that the path he's on is a dangerous one. This is why Proverbs would say this, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. It is clear, you want to set him off on a path of destruction toward themselves and others, then don't do anything. They'll find that on their own. You want to lead them and shepherd them to know God and walk with God. That takes intentionality. That's generally what Proverbs 22.6 is saying. I want to show you a couple of st- statistics quickly that, that bear this out. Hey, this is uh, from the National Survey of Youth and Religion from just a couple of years ago. Here's what they found. Just 1% of teens ages 15 to 17 raised by parents who attached little importance to religion were highly religious in their mid to late 20s. So you see what they're saying, that, that if you do not attach importance to the things of God in the home while your kids are growing up, they don't see you praying, they don't see you reading the scripture, they don't see you prioritizing being a part of the community of believers. If you're not doing those things, there's actually a pretty strong, uh, strong chance. 99% that they're just going to grow up and follow that pathway. But look at this on the other hand. 
In contrast, 82% of children raised by parents who talked about faith at home attached great importance to their beliefs and were active in their congregations, were themselves religiously active as young adults. In other words, there's there's a strong correlation that in general, as a general principle, parents who honor the things of God, parents who teach their kids to know Jesus, generally, most of the time, statistically, have kids that grow up to do the same. But notice there's still 18% that still say, I'm going to go my own way anyway. Because there are no guarantees. That's not what Proverbs 22.6 is. It's a general principle. And so my hope is, again, that we elevate the reality that as parents, you have a lot of influence. In fact, probably nobody has more influence than you do, even if it doesn't seem that way. Even if you're like, they never listen to me. When I tell them to do something, you have influence. And in fact, the studies that I have read show it's not so much what you tell them to do that matters. It's what you do that matters. It's what they see you doing. Are you a person who loves, worships, and prioritizes Jesus? Are you a person who lives with integrity? Are you a person who treats others with the love and the kindness of Jesus Christ? You see, and they see that. And that has a deep impact. But I also want to lower that sense of shame and guilt. For a couple of reasons. One, there's no perfect parents in the room. Except the Spirit of God. But there's no perfect parents in the room. And also because you have influence, but you don't have control. And I'm aware of families with many kids where they may have three, four kids that are walking with Jesus as adults and they may have one that has walked away or two that have walked away. Same background, same parents, same influence. So we have influence, but we don't have control. And I think that's often difficult for us as parents because the reality is that the day will come, if it hasn't already, when they'll be outside of our direct influence in the home, right? Uh, When I was the college pastor at Grace years ago, uh, this time of year, almost every year, I could almost time my watch by it. It would happen between late August and mid-September. I'd start getting phone calls from parents of incoming freshmen. Usually it was from the mom of a son. And she would call and she would say, hey, my son, he grew up going to church But I don't know if he's going anymore and I don't know if he's going to go anymore and I'm concerned about that. I want him to keep knowing God and walking with God. So could you give him a call and make him come to your church? And then there was always the follow-up, but if you don't mind, don't tell him that I said to call because I don't want him to know that I asked you. And I would always have to explain, hey, you know, there, there are like 60,000 students around here and I can't possibly call them all. So I have no way of explaining to your child why I picked him out. But if he'll call me, if he'll call me, I'll give him all the information he needs. I'll even try to arrange a ride to church for him. I'll help him connect. I'll do everything after that first phone call. Because here's the deal. Ultimately, he has to stand before God And give an account of his own life. And you can't control him anymore. Right? And and the truth is you never could. 
And I think often that, that sentiment, it came from uh, one of two places. Sometimes, not, not most often, but sometimes it came from a parent who would say, you know what, but he went to church, or at least we dropped him off at youth group. But as you dug deeper, the reality was that the home did not reflect the values of Jesus. They hoped they would pick those up along the way from others. But, but more often, it was a question from somebody who had prioritized Jesus in the home. They had prayed for their kids. They had trained them. They had taken them to church with them. They read the scripture. They were involved in, in prioritizing the things of Jesus. And now the reality is they're, they're just afraid. Because the illusion of control is gone. So Proverbs 22.6 does not promise to us a guarantee that we put in the right inputs. We'll get the right outputs. Instead, it says as a general principle, children raised to know and obey God will become adults who know and obey God. We have influence, but not control. I want to close with a few quick applications. The first one is this. If we have influence but not control, then we ought to be praying for our children. Because God is in control. If we believe in a powerful and loving God, then pray for your kids morning, noon, night, every day. Pray for your kids to know and walk with Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. In fact, if the men will go ahead and start getting ready for that. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And I think communion is a great opportunity for us to to remember why we are here and ultimately what we want our kids to know, which is that Jesus loves them. Jesus died for their sins and rose again so they can have eternal life. And so, so we pray for them and we teach them the truth of the scripture and we bring them here, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we want them to understand all that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And so as we celebrate what Jesus has done, We also pray that our kids will grow to be people who trust and celebrate what Jesus has done. Secondly, we follow Jesus faithfully and then teach our kids to follow Jesus faithfully. Let them see you studying and trying to apply God's word. Let them see you praying for the nations and those that don't know Jesus. Let them see you using your finances and your time in a way that honors God. And teach them why. And then lastly, we trust God with the outcome. We're not in charge of outcomes. All we can do is is use the influence God has given us for a short period of time to train our kids to know him. Wherever you are in the parenting process, again, my prayer is this elevates the influence we have, but it removes the shame and guilt, especially if you're looking back with shame and guilt. I pray that you will recognize that, that for most of us in this room, even today, there's still hope. Even if you have, have failed in many ways as a parent, today you can get on your knees and pray for your kids. I don't care if you're 90 and they're 65. Jesus offers hope. And so as we celebrate communion, let's pray for one another to grow in a deeper relationship with Jesus and also pray for our kids. Would the men come forward to serve the elements? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the death and resurrection of Jesus in whom we have life eternally. Father, we pray that we would, we would trust you as we, as we seek to lead and shepherd our kids. Father, for those in the room who, who don't yet have children, Lord, we pray that you would prepare. And in the meanwhile, we ask that you would lead them to pray for those who do. Father, we pray that you would allow us to be wise and faithful with the stewardship that you have given us recognizing that you have given us a great deal of influence, but you're in control. We pray we would trust that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.